0: Part two Chapter twenty eight of How I Filmed The War by Jeffrey H. Mallins. This Librivox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty-eight The Story of an Armoured Car about which I could a tale unfold. To keep hard upon the heels of the retreating Germans and so obtain scenes, the character of which had never been presented before to the British public was my chief aim. I had no time for sleep. I arrived at my base wet through. The rain had continued throughout the whole of my return journey. Changing into dry underwear, I refilled my exposed spool boxes and packed up a good surplus supply, sufficient to last for several days. Then, packing my knapsack with the usual rations, bully and bread, condensed milk and slabs of chocolate, I was ready to start out once more. My clothes had by this time dried. Daylight was breaking— the car arrived, and with all kit aboard I started out again for the Somme, wondering what the day would bring forth. I stopped on the way to pick up the still photographer. "'Wherefore, to-day?' he asked. "'Beauvincourt and Vrennes,' I replied, and, if possible, one or two of the villages nearby. I must get into them before our troops, so as to be able to film their entry. "'Does that suggest possibilities to you?' I said with a smile." Knowing that he, like myself, would go through anything to obtain pictures possibilities he said, "Don't you make my mouth water? How about food? Shall we take some to the villages? Excellent idea, I said. We stopped on the way and purchased a good supply of white bread and French sausages, thinking that these two commodities would be most useful through Foucacourt d'Estrees and Ville Carbonel. The roads were lined with troops, guns, and transport of every description all making their way forward. Engineers were hard at work on the roads. Shell holes were filled in and road trenches bridged. Work was being pushed forward with an energy and skill which reflected great credit upon those in charge. Traffic controls were at crossroads, which 48 hours before had been no man's land. Hun signboards were taken down and familiar British names took their place. The sight was wonderful en route i stopped and filmed various scenes arriving again at brie on the somme the change in affairs was astounding the place was alive with men it was a veritable hive of industry new lines were being laid to replace the torn and twisted rails left by the germans bridges were being strengthened roads on both sides were widened and to make it possible to continue the work throughout the night a searchlight was being mounted upon a platform crossing the bridges of brie we mounted the hill and were once again upon the ridge great gaps had been made by our men in the huge line of barbed-wire entanglements which the huns had spent months of laborious work to construct it stretched away over hill and dale on both sides as far as the eye could see to pick up further information i stopped a cyclist officer coming from the direction of mons any news i inquired where is "'We were in touch with his rear-guards all last night,' he said. "'They have made several strong points round the villages of Vren, Aucourt, and Bierne. "'They were scouting around Vren, but we quickly put the wind up them,' he said with a smile. "'Several villages were seen burning during the night, "'and the enemy put a little shrapnel around some patrols near Puyi, but no damage was done. "'Vrennes, of course, is quite clear. "'Yes, as far as we know.' our patrols reported it clear late last evening but possibly bosch returned during the night we captured three bosch and they have an extraordinary tale of seeing two armoured cars yesterday evening near bonvincourt and they insisted upon it although i am quite aware there were none at all near there they say that about six o'clock they were on the outskirts of bonvincourt when two armoured cars came in sight not having a machine-gun with them they decided to hide and so took cover in the ruins of a house later on they say they saw only one car leave in the direction of the main road that's their tale and they seem quite serious about it well i said with a grin do you think this car of mine would look like an armoured car at a distance well yes possibly in a failing light why well this must be one of your excellent prisoner's so-called armoured cars because i was in beauvancourt with blank of the corps intelligence hence the two cars i missed him through getting stuck in the mud and entered beauvincourt about six o'clock and left by myself later as a skirmish was taking place somewhere near by and not being armed with anything more dangerous than a camera i decided to quit i am much obliged to the Bosch for taking this bus of mine for an armoured car with a laugh and a cheery adieu the officer bade me good luck and pedalled off i could not help thinking that i had had a lucky escape On again, and reaching the first mine, the scene of the previous night's adventure, I put the car to the field at a rush, and by some extraordinary means got around. I was just entering the village when, with a shriek and a crash, a shell burst near the church. I stopped the car, and under cover of the ruins reached a distance of about three hundred yards from where it fell. If any more were coming over, I intended, if possible, to film them bursting carefully taking cover behind a wall i fitted up my camera another shell came hurtling over and dropped and burst quite near the previous spot showers of bricks flew in all directions liberally splattering the wall behind which i was concealed the debris cleared up with my camera and standing by the handle i awaited the next it came soon enough i heard the shriek nearer and nearer i turned the handle and put my head close behind the camera with my eye to the viewfinder crash, came the shell, and with a terrific report it exploded. The whole side of a house disappeared, and bricks, wood, and metal flew in all directions. I continued to turn, when, with an ugly little whistle, a small piece of something struck my viewfinder, and another my tripod. Luckily nothing touched the lens. I awaited the next. It was longer this time, but it came, and nearer to me than the previous one. I was satisfied i thought if they elevated another fifty yards i might get a much too close view of a shell burst so scrambled aboard the car and made a detour round the mine on to the road beyond those scenes ought to be very fine i said it's one of those lucky chances where one has to take the risk of obtaining a thrilling scene by the balls of white smoke i could see that shrapnel was bursting in the near distance that's near puilly i said we are turning up on the left. Let's hope the Huns don't plaster us there. Reaching the village of Beauvincourt, the villagers were there, eagerly awaiting our arrival. They again crowded around the car, and it was with difficulty that I persuaded them to let us pass into the village. Cheering, shouting, and laughing, they followed close behind. I stopped the car and asked an old man, who, by his ribbons, had been through the 1870 war, "'Where is the mayor?' "'There is no mayor, monsieur, but a mayoress, and she is there,' pointing to a buxom French peasant woman about fifty years of age. "'I went up to her and explained in my best French "'that I had brought bread and sausages for the people. "'Would she share them out?' "'Oui, oui, monsieur. "'I would like you to do it here. "'I will then take a kinematograph film of the proceeding, "'so that the people in England can see it. "'Ah, monsieur, it is the first white bread and good French sausage "'we have seen since the Boche came.' they took everything from us everything and if it had not been for the american relief we should have starved they are brutes pig brutes monsieur they kill everything and with tears in her eyes she told me how the huns shot her beautiful dog because in its joyfulness it used to play with and bark at the children they did not like being disturbed monsieur so they shot him poor jacques they have not left one single animal everything has gone mon dieu but they shall suffer I changed the painful subject by saying that now the British had driven back the Bosch, everything would be quite all right. With a wan smile, she agreed. I set up my camera, and telling my man to hand over the food, the mayoress shared it out. One sausage and a piece of white bread to each person, men, women, and children. The joy on their faces was wonderful to behold as they received their share they ran off to the shelter of some ruins or up into the church to cook their wonderful gifts i filmed the scene and i shall never forget it the last of the batch had disappeared when up the road came hobbling a woman whose age i should say was somewhere about forty-five i could see she was on the point of exhaustion she had a huge bundle upon her back and a child in her arms another about seven years clinging to her skirts They halted outside the ruins of a cottage. The woman dropped her bundle, and, crouching down upon it, clung convulsively to the babe in her arms and burst into tears. I went up to her and gently asked her the cause. This, monsieur, was my house. Two days past, The Germans drove me away with my children. My husband has already been killed at the front. They drove me away, and I come back to-day, and now my home. All that I had in the world, monsieur, is gone. They have burnt it what can i do monsieur and we are starving the babe in her arms began to send forth a thin lifeless wail i helped the poor woman to her feet and told her to go to the church and that i would bring her bundle and some food for her god above what despair the grim track of war in all its damnable nakedness was epitomized in this little french hamlet houses burnt horses taken away agricultural implements willfully smashed fruit-trees and bushes cut down, even the hedges around their little gardens, their cemetery violated, and the remains of their dead strewn to the four winds of heaven, their wells polluted with garbage and filth, in some cases deliberately poisoned, in others totally destroyed by dynamite, their churches used as stables for horses and for drunken orgies, all the younger men deported, and the prettiest of the girls." In some cases their clothes had been forcibly taken away from them, and sacks had been given in exchange to clothe themselves with. They were robbed of every penny they possessed. But when the wonderful sound of the British guns and the tramp of our soldiers crept nearer and nearer, terrifying, relentless, and irresistible, the Germans left, fleeing with their ill-gotten spoil like demons of darkness before the angels of light, leaving in their trail the picture I have unfolded to you wishing to push on further i scouted round the outskirts of the village in a wood a short distance away it was evident that our patrols were in contact with the huns volley after volley of rifle fire rang out and now and then a burst from the machine guns a horseman was heading straight for me was he british or hun in a few minutes i could see he was one of our men evidently a dispatch rider he swept down into a hollow then up the road into the village he was riding hard his horse stumbled, but by a great effort the rider recovered himself. He dashed past me, and clattering over the fallen masonry, disappeared from sight. I looked around. Not a sign of life anywhere. So I decided to make for Vrennes, about a kilometre distant southeast of Beauvincourt. I had previously heard from one of the villagers that there were about one thousand people left there. Strapping my camera on my back, I tramped away, my man following in the rear. The still man, who had left me after feeding the villagers, had been prowling around getting pictures. Accidentally he ran into me, so together we trekked off. Taking advantage of every bit of cover possible, as German snipers were none too careful as to where they put their bullets, we eventually reached the outskirts of Rennes. Not a sign of Germans, but crowds of civilians. Things here were the same as at Beauvincourt but a few more houses were left standing, owing to the fire not completely doing its work. The people were in the same state. We had just got into the village and near the mairie when a commotion round the corner by the church attracted my attention. The men and women who had crowded around us shouting with joy turned and rushed up the road. Vive les Anglais! Vive les Anglais! The cry was taken up by everyone. Hands and handkerchiefs were waving in all directions. Vive les Anglais! Vive les Anglais! Our boys are there, I said. My camera was up and turned on to the corner where the crowd stood, and at that moment a troop of our cyclists entered, riding very slowly through the exultant people, the first British troops to enter the village. I turned the handle. The scene was inspiring. Cheer after cheer rent the air. Old men and women were crying with joy. Others were holding their babies up to kiss our boys children were clinging and hugging around their legs until it was impossible for them to proceed further the order was given by the officer in charge to halt the men tumbled off their machines the people surged round them to say the men were embarrassed would be to put it mildly they were absolutely overcome i filmed them with the crowd around and then an order was given to take up the billets patrols were thrown out sentries posted the men parked their cycles and rested on a large double door of a barn, the Huns had gone to the trouble of painting in huge letters the hackneyed phrase, "Gott STRAFE ENGLAND, and immediately our men saw it, one of them with a piece of chalk improved upon it. They gathered the children round them and formed a group beneath the letters with German trophies upon their heads. I filmed them there, one of the happiest groups possible to conceive. I left them and went to find the officer in charge, and asked him for the latest news from other sections i couldn't say he replied but my men were well in touch with them early this morning but you seem to know more about it here than anyone else when on earth did you arrive in the village just before you i replied i came from bovencourt well you have got some job i certainly didn't expect to find anyone so harmless as a photographer awaiting our arrival the conversation was abruptly stopped by a warning shout from one of the observers on a housetop close by germans sir the officer and i rushed to a gap in the buildings and looked through our glasses and there on a small ridge a thousand yards off a body of horsemen were seen approaching riding hard as if their very lives depended upon it an order was immediately given to the machine-gun company who had taken up a most advantageous position and one that commanded most of the country near by i placed my camera in such a position by the side of a wall that i could see all that was taking place and if seen myself, I could easily pull it under cover. Nearer and nearer they came. They were too far away to photograph. Excitement was intense. Were they coming into the village? If they did, I thought, in all conscience they would get a warm reception, knowing, as I did, the arrangements for its defence. My eyes were fixed upon them. The officer close by was on the point of giving the order to fire when a burst of machine-gun fire rang out in the distance. Our cavalry have got them, said the officer. We have some strong posts just here. Bosch has fairly run into them. Look, they have their tails up. And they had, for they were running back for all they were worth in the direction of Bierne. Our men were positively disappointed, and I can honestly say I was myself, for the possibilities of a wonderful scene had disappeared. The tension relaxed. Most of the men returned to their billets and quickly made themselves at home with the people. Noticing people going into church, I went up the hill to investigate. As I entered the outer gate, an officer clattered up on horseback, swung himself off, and walked up to me. "Hello," he said. "'I am the doctor. Anything doing here?' "'Well,' I said, "'there might have been just now.' I related the happenings of the last ten minutes. "'Have you been to Beauvancourt?' "'Yes, but the poor devils are too ill for me. I haven't sufficient stuff with me to go round.' Another officer ran up. I say, doctor, for heaven's sake, look in the church here. The place is packed and half of them are ill, God knows what with, and one or two are dead. Well, I will look, but I can do nothing until this evening. I have no stuff with me. We went into the church. Heavens, what a sight met our eyes. The atmosphere was choking. It was like a charnel house. Crowds of old men, women, and children of all ages were crowded together with their belongings. They had been evacuated from dozens of other villages by the Huns. Women were hugging their children to them. In one corner an old woman was bathing the head of a child with an old stocking dipped in water. The child, I could see, was in a high fever. There must have been at least three hundred people lying about in all directions, wheezing and coughing, moaning and crying. The doctor spoke to one old woman, who had hobbled forward and sank down near a pillar the doctor bent down and told her that he would bring medicine in the evening everybody there seemed to hear that magic word and scrambled forward begging for medicine for themselves but mostly for the children the scene was pitiable in the extreme i asked one woman where they had come from she told me from many villages the bush had turned them all out of their homes then burnt their houses and their belongings they had walked miles exposed to the freezing cold rains and winds They had been packed into this church like a lot of sheep without covering, without fires. She was begging for medicine for her three-months-old babe. She will die, monsieur, she will die, and the poor woman burst into a flood of tears. I calmed her as much as possible by telling her that everything would be done for them without delay, and that medicine, food, and comfort would be given them. I turned and left the building, for the air was nearly choking me outside i met the doctor who was arranging to send a cyclist back for an ambulance they cannot be treated here it's impossible i have never seen such a sight i left him and went into the house where the cyclist c o had made his temporary headquarters i want to get on further is there any other village nearby yes he said there is aucourt, but i believe Bosch is in part of it or he was this morning it's about two kilos from here i shouldn't go if i were you unless you get further information "'I am expecting another patrol in from there. "'If you care to wait a few minutes, you may learn something.' "'I agreed to wait. "'The still man came in just then, and he agreed to come with me. "'We may as well risk it,' I said. "'I will take my old bus into the place. "'If Bosch sees it, he may mistake it again for an armored car. "'So, packing the cameras aboard, "'I waited for the expected patrol to turn up. "'Half an hour passed. "'No sign. "'Daylight was waning.' i am going on i said to the still man we cannot wait for the patrol there's not time will you come yes he said i told the c o of my intention it's thundering risky he said you're going into new ground again i left Vren and advanced at a cautious pace in the direction of au rifle fire was proceeding in the distance which i judged was the other side of the village a destroyed sugar refinery on the left was still smoking It had been blown up by the Huns, and the mass of machinery was flung and twisted about in all directions. In the village I stopped the car close by a crucifix, which was still standing. Turn the car round, I said to my driver, and keep the engine going. We may have to bolt for it. Then, shouldering the camera, I made my way up the main street. The place was a mass of smoking ruins. Absolutely nothing was left. A huge mine had been blown up at a crossroad. All trees and bushes had been cut down. A piano, curiously enough, was lying in the roadway. The front had been smashed, and no doubt all the wires were hacked through by some sharp instrument, and the keys had all been broken. The Huns had evidently tried to take it away with their other loot, but finding it too heavy for quick transport had abandoned, then willfully destroyed it, to prevent its being used by others. The place was as silent as the grave. I filmed a few scenes, which appealed to me, and was on the move towards the further end of the road when two of our cyclists suddenly came into view. I hurried up to them. Any news, I asked, where's Bosch? The men were half dead with fatigue. Their legs were caked inches thick in mud, and it was only by a tremendous effort that they were able to lift their feet as they walked. They were pushing their cycles. The mud was caked thick between the wheels and the mud guards, forming in itself a brake on the tires. "'Fagged out as they obviously were, "'they tried to smile at the reply one made. "'Yes, the Bosch is about here, "'outside the village,' said one. "'We had a small strong point last night over there,' "'pointing in the distance, "'myself and two pals. "'We were sitting in the hole smoking "'when nine Boshes jumped in on us. "'Well, sir, they managed to send my pal west, "'but that's all. "'Then we started, "'and six Fritzes are lying out there now. "'The other three escaped.' "'It made my blood boil, sir, when they did in my pal. "'I'm going to make a wooden cross and then bury it. "'We had been together for a long time, sir, and... "'Well, I miss my pal, but we got six for him, "'and more to come, sir, more to come before we finish. "'I thanked the man and sympathized with him over his loss "'and complimented him on his fight. "'But it's not enough yet, sir, not enough.' "'The two then struggled away, "'bent on their errand of making a cross for a pal.' AND AS THEY DISAPPEARED AMONG THE RUINS, I WONDERED HOW MANY MEN IN THE WORLD COULD BOAST OF SUCH A TRUE FRIEND. VERY FEW, WORSE LUCK. THE SHARP CRACK OF A RIFLE QUICKLY BROUGHT ME BACK TO EARTH. A BULLET STRUCK THE WALL CLOSE BY. I DIVED UNDER COVER OF SOME BRICKS, DRAGGING MY CAMERA AFTER ME. ANOTHER CAME OVER, SEEMING TO STRIKE THE SPOT I HAD JUST VACATED. I DECIDED TO KEEP THE RUINS BETWEEN MYSELF AND THE GENTLE bosch. SCENES WERE VERY SCARCE. No matter where one looked, it was just ruins, ruins, ruins. I wandered on until I came to a long black building evidently put up by the Huns. It was quite intact, which to me seemed suspicious. It might hide a German sniper. I put my camera behind a wall, then quietly edged near the building. Not a sound was audible. In case anyone was there, I thought of a little ruse. The door was close to me, and it opened outwards so picking up a stone i flung it over the roof intending it to fall the other end and so create a diversion with a sudden pull i opened the door alongside me but with no result i peered round the door nobody there i entered and found the building had been used as a stable straw was lying all over the place feed-bags had been hastily thrown down halters were dotted here and there and a uhlan lance was lying on the ground which, needless to say, I retained as a souvenir. The rear guard of the enemy had evidently taken shelter there during the previous night and had made a hasty exit owing to the close proximity of our boys. Evening was drawing on apace, so I decided to make my way back to the car. The still man was awaiting my return. At Beauvincourt I met an intelligence officer and told him of my experiences. He seemed highly amused and thanked me for the information brought. I told him that, wishing to be on the spot if anything interesting happened during the night or early next morning, I had decided to sleep in my car in the village. I was going to hunt up a place to cook some food. "'I will take you somewhere,' he said. "'There is the old mayor of Bierne here. He has been evacuated by the Bosch. He's an interesting old fellow, and you might have a chat with him. He's in a house close by with his wife. Come along.' We found the old man in one of the half-dozen remaining houses left intact by the Huns. We entered the kitchen, and my friend introduced us to Paul Andrew, a tall, stately French farmer of a type one rarely sees. He had dark curly hair, a shaggy mustache and beard, blue eyes and sunken cheeks, sallow complexion and a look of despair upon his face, which seemed to brighten up on our entrance. I asked him if his good wife would cook a little food for us, as we wished to stay the night in the village monsieur he said what we have is yours god knows it's little enough Le boche has taken it all but whatever monsieur wishes he has only to ask will monsieur sit down i bade adieu to the officer who had brought us there had the car run into the yard and then returned to the cosy kitchen and sat by the fire whilst the old lady prepared some hot coffee these are more comfortable quarters than we expected to-night i said I must make a note of all my scenes taken today. Have you a light, monsieur Andrew? Oui, monsieur, I have only one lamp left, and I hid that, as the Boche took everything that was made of brass or copper, even the door-handles. He brought in the lamp, a small brass one with a candle stuck in it. I proceeded with my record. Then we supped on bread, sardines, and bully, sharing our white bread with Andrew and his wife. They had not seen or tasted such wonderful stuff since the Boche occupation and their eyes sparkled with pleasure on tasting it again. I had brought copies of the Echo de Paris, Journal, Matin, and other French papers, and these were the first they had seen for two years. The farmer declared it was like a man awakening from a long sleep. We'll turn in, I said. Gathering up my coat, I opened the door. The freezing cold seemed to chill me to the bone, and it was snowing hard. I flashed on my torch, and we found our way to the car. Quickly getting inside, I unfolded the seats, which formed two bunks, and struggling inside our sleeping bags, we were soon asleep. I awoke with a start. It was pitch dark. I rubbed the steam from the door window and looked out. It was still snowing. I had an extraordinary feeling that something was happening, that some danger was near. If anybody had been there near the car, I should have seen them. The snow made that possible. But there was not a sign of movement. I got out of my sleeping-bag, thinking that if any prowling Bosch patrol ventured near, I should be able to do something. Nothing happened, and for quite half an hour I was on the alert. Several rifle shots rang out quite near. Then quietness reigned again, and, as nothing else happened, I wriggled into my bag again and dozed. In the morning I told one of our patrol officers of my experience. "'You were right,' he said.' Ulan rear-guard patrol sneaked in near the village and must have passed quite close to your place. My men had some shots at them and gave chase, but owing to the confounded snow they got away. I decided that if I slept there again that night, it would be with a rifle by my side. End of Part 2 Chapter twenty-eight.